0: If you think you have what it takes, hit us up at Hoopball Fantasy on Twitter or by emailing Team Hoopball at hoopdashball dot com. Again, that's at Hoopball Fantasy on Twitter or emailing Team at hoopdashball The following
1: is a Hoopball presentation.
0: And now uh, we are back on the Ball Chicago Bulls podcast. I know it's been a little bit, everybody. Greg Moraz, your host here with you. Excited to recap all of the last dance. I hope that everybody had a great Memorial Day weekend. Hope that you stayed safe. As we're still in this ambiguous period of what is going to happen to the NBA, we are going to recap what has been the most riveting five weeks of television that I can remember, at least since COVID started. We are talking about the conclusion of the last dance with the fine gentleman from the Pulling Back the Curtain podcast, a show that talks Chicago sports and Chicago culture from the great city of Chicago, Illinois. We've got Dead Prez, Novak, and Jules. Gents, what is good? Thanks for coming on the show.
2: Hey, thanks for having us, Greg, man. How's, how's it going? How was the weekend, brother?
0: Weekend was good. I was down in Southern California, enjoyed the sun, but I'm back here in San Francisco now and excited to talk some last dance. I'm sad. You know, I went to the TV last night at my buddy's place in L.A., and I kept fully expecting to, to see Episode 11 and 12, and I was just disappointed that we didn't have any Chicago Bulls content to consume.
2: And then you were stuck watching Lance Armstrong, right?
0: No, I didn't actually <laughs> watch it. Um, I had heard some interesting reviews in regards to it, so I just decided to take a TV break for the night. Let's just put it that way.
2: Yeah, you, you didn't miss anything. It was It was terrible.
0: Good enough. So I want to talk <laughs> with you guys about everything that The Last Dance encompassed and a couple of interesting things that have come out in the last few days. I want to first start with the – Jordan rules of the nineties and the relationship between the bulls and the Pistons, because there was audio that came out. If you're listening to this on a Wednesday, audio that surfaced a little bit earlier today from TMZ that Jordan said he would not play on the dream team. If Isaiah Thomas was a part of the dream team and the last dance documentary made it clear the disdain that Jordan had not only for the Pistons, but for Isaiah Thomas in particular, I said it to you guys in a couple of (laughs) off-air conversations. I don't think there is an athlete that is as hated in his own hometown as Isaiah Thomas is in Chicago. But when you look at Jordan's statement from this audio and put it in with what we found out from the last dance, does it kind of give you guys the sense that Isaiah and getting over the hump against those Pistons teams is what jump-started the dynasty. Because for me, I feel like every little bit of kindling can help fuel the fire, and that was what made the Flames go up.
2: Well, well, Greg, I think uh, it absolutely did. Because as you can see, Jordan and Scotty and those guys, they, they all bulked up, and Horace as well. They got in the gym. I think that mental warfare is really what got them over the hump. Well, I mean, I don't know what you guys know back in Julesville, but I think that's that definitely uh, propelled them to that next level of the uh, title contention.
3: I definitely agree. I mean, I think um, I think the fact that the Pistons were so tough with them, and you know the way they played them, it changed the way we played basketball. The way the way the Bulls of the nineties attacked basketball because it forced them to grow up quicker than what they needed to. It also also made them focus on bonding as a team and getting stronger, getting more physical. I mean, uh, definitely. I mean, if there's no Pistons, then there is no six feet at this point. So, they owe a lot of that respect goes back to the Pistons for making them who they are at this point, who they were.
1: Yeah, exactly. Uh, Like I said, I agree with with everybody here. Uh, The Bulls were – they exposed the Bulls' weakness, what the Pistons did which allowed the Bulls to, to, to go back to the drawing board and see what can we do to get stronger and beat these guys. They almost beat them with, with the style they was doing. So what the Pistons did was they they isolated Mike. They, they shut Mike down and everybody else couldn't, had to step up, but they didn't really know how to step up. So they exposed that weakness on on that teamwork. So with with the Pistons, what they did, with they bullied them boys, they allowed Mike and them to go back to the drawing board prepare themselves mentally and physically. They had to get strong because they wasn't playing with them. That was some some street ball they was playing with them in in in, 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 in NBA in NBA settings. So they had to go and get their minds right and their bodies right in and shaping up the other players around Mike in order to beat them. So yes, credit go to the to the Pistons to to for the Bulls to reach the next level in their, in order to reach the championship.
0: I don't feel like there is an athlete in the last 30 years. Maybe Tiger Woods is the exception. But to me, Michael and Tiger have two of the best work ethics of any pro athlete in the last 30 years. And watching the last dance gave me a greater appreciation of what Michael had to do to become the greatest basketball player on the planet because he was cut from his varsity team as a sophomore – and worked himself at North Carolina into being a great player from just a really good player. And when he talks about that moment where he went from Mike to Michael is that moment where he realized that he could be something greater than what he was. For you guys, what moment of the Bulls dynasty or even of Michael's career best encapsulates his work ethic?
2: I I would say for me this is going to be a little unconventional, but I'm going to say when when Jordan retired, um, I thought that showed a lot uh, in regards to the way that he basically turned his body to that of a baseball player. Right, his whole career he was a basketball player. um, Everything he had done up to that point in his career was surrounding being a basketball player. Personally learning how to be a hitter, how to feel, how to play in the outfield, and actually turned himself into a decent ball player. I mean, he was hitting 250 and won ball. So for me, I thought that encapsulated 100% to me. I mean, I don't know any modern uh, athlete right now that would be considered the best in the game could go into another uh, sport after not playing that sport for 14 years and then be a, and being slightly successful at it as well. I mean, I even think that we even talked about it on our show – I think that he could have actually made it to the, to the major leagues as a reserved outfielder with the progression that he was making. So I think for me, that's something that stood out to me.
3: I got to say the the workouts doing uh, the Space Jam filming is what really stood out to me the most is the fact that he's filming all day. He's working out, he's playing at night, he's lifting weights. I mean, that really showed you how dedicated he was to being better than everybody at that point, because not only did he invite the best players in the world to work out against him, he all, he, asked, he watched these guys all summer. You know, he watched their instincts. He watched their habits. He worked out with them. He beat them. And then he went and filmed the movie at the same time. So, to me, that's when Michael really showed you that he was on, he was cut from a different cloth at that point because we got to see him. You know, it wasn't a great actor, <laughs> but Space Jam is what it is. We got a chance to see him put in some real work during that summer and get to know everybody
1: yeah uh listen i think what stood out for me is when when mike transitioned from this 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 going the lane type player to to adding the the turnaround jumper in in his game as he got older when he was younger getting getting started in the bulls and stuff man he was all over the place but you know as a man father time catch up to everybody so as he got older he conditioned his body where okay some of the things he couldn't you know do a, a, as he was when he was a rookie or nothing like that. But he was able to transition from that game to a different game as a as a turnaround jumper or uh, you know shooting the the mid range jumper and stuff like that. I kind of like how he he went from 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 going in a hole just dunking on you to to being more of a finesseful type player and use use more of his uh mentality his mental instinct than than, than physical. So, I think
0: the one thing like, that gets a little bit lost when people compare the 90s Bulls to the modern Warriors or really anybody else is that the three point shot was not a big part of the game in the 90s. But what made the Bulls' offense so good is the triangle offense. And they did a great job of highlighting Tech's winner and highlighting Phil Jackson's ability to use Tex winner as the resource to run the most efficient offense in basketball. And we know how good it was because Kobe Shaq and Phil's Lakers did the same thing to you guys. What did the triangle offense and the implementation of it represent in the ascension of the bulls from being a really good team under Doug Collins to being an elite team with a lot of the same guys, that are complimentary pieces like the Scotty Pippins. And granted, he was more than just a complimentary piece, but, you know, the Scottie Pippins, the John Paxons, the B.J. Armstrongs, etc. cetera.
2: I think for me, when I look at that, that the uh, triangle offense took the ball out of Mike's hands and it basically distributed it to other people. Um, it turned Scottie Pippen into one of the most dangerous guys on that team. Scotty transformed into a point forward. He became Mike's sidekick. And at that point, you saw a confidence being instilled in Scotty that wasn't there prior to the institution of that offense. Um, that triangle offense, when you think about it, it had so many counters to it. So um, any team trying to face the Bulls during that time, any, at any point in time, you never knew who was going to end up with that ball uh, with the shot clock running down, except for Bill Cartwright, of course, because obviously we saw that Mike didn't want Bill Cartwright shooting the ball. But other than that, I think that triangle offense really <laughs> opened everything over there. That team.
3: <laughs> <laughs> no, I, to- I totally agree with you on that one, uh, Prez. I mean, one of the things with the triangle offense is that it created ball space. It created lanes that people actually could drive to the, bas- the basket with. Before the triangle, I mean, there were a lot of ways of the bulls. They just, you know, teams would collapse on the lanes. They were overread the, the passing lanes out there pretty much. So the triangle offense took away a lot of the creativity for most defenses, and this is before the, this is before you could run a zone defense in the NBA. So you couldn't guard the area. I mean, there were a lot more uh, legal defenses called during that era, during the Bulls era. If you notice know, the triangle, because guys were always out of position because they're trying to guard somebody, overload on the weak side, they never get back in time. But I think you know it took the ball it took the ball out of Jordan's hands it gave everybody else the ability to hit that open to hit open shots. And it also created more of a, a team chemistry. I mean, there was no chemistry when you're playing iso ball. It's great to probably relate to that. I mean, with iso ball, you just watch a guy go to work and everybody clears out and watch the other side of the court. But the triangle incorporated everybody, so everybody had a role.
1: Yeah, that, um, that triangle was essential. It was the one of the big key pieces to, for the Bulls winning all the championships. Uh, like uh, President Novak said, it 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 brought up everybody else's game because not only you had the greatest scorer in, in the game as Michael Jordan, but it 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 rose Scottie Pippen, it rose Horace Grant, B.J. Craig, all the other boys. They all had a role and they all had a job to do and they did it well. Or we wouldn't have six six championships. So that triangle offense allowed everybody to get a piece of the puzzle, a piece of the pie there, and it. Ex- and it I, to me, I think it made Mike a better player. In my opinion, he was a great player as, as as it is, but it made him it rose him into this this phenom of a player that that uh that nobody it well I shouldn't say anybody, but it'll be hard to catch one day, you know, catch him. So that that triangle offense was was very essential.
0: I think one of the things that to me compares and contrasts iso ball with the triangle offense is why the bulls won six championships you talk about ball movement why the warriors have been as good as they have and why james harden hasn't won jack squat uh, <laughs> that, and, and look right. as somebody as somebody that loves great team basketball i can't stand watching james harden play it is it is basketball that I need to avert my eyes to. But this is a show that's talking about the 90s Bulls, not about why the Houston Rockets are never going to win anything. But <laughs> let's let's move on to a point that I feel like was left out of the documentary. And that was Scottie Pippen's greatness. Because every time Scottie Pippen was featured in this documentary, He was featured in a negative light, whether it be the migraine game, 1.8 seconds, his back injury, the willingness to delay his surgery after the 97 finals, the fact that he wanted to get traded because he was not getting paid what he felt like he should be getting paid. I think it's the biggest travesty of this documentary because if you take Scottie Pippen off of that team, they probably don't win as many titles as they do, if any at all. You know, one man cannot win a title on his own. So I want to get your guys' impression of what you felt like and whether it is the reflection of Scotty over the course of the last dance or something else, what is the thing – in your minds, that the documentary got the most wrong. And for me, it is the treatment and the image of Scottie Pippen.
2: Well, I'll touch on that just that since you brought it up. I, I thought that Scotty's portrayal, while it probably was a little rough and raw for some people to see, I mean, truth hurts. I mean, all of those things that they pointed out, they happen. And so when you think of Scotty, heck yeah, he's a top 50 player of all time. However, the 1.8 situation, it happened. The contract disputes, they happened, you know, so we can't hide away from, from history. However, Mm -hmm. I do think that not enough credit was given to Scotty in the role that he played on that team, because as you mentioned, Greg, without Scotty, we don't have six rings, right? So uh, at the end of the day, Scotty has a complicated legacy when it comes to the Bulls, because people are always going to remember those negative things. We're going to remember that migraine game in Detroit because he didn't come to play in game seven, right? So, there's a lot of things about his history that a lot of Bulls fans are going to remember, and they're probably going to hold against him, whether it's fair or not. Uh, but I do think just when I look at the situation with Scotty in that documentary, while the portrayal was a little harsh, it was it was true.
3: A lot of that stuff was true. No, I, I agree with you. A lot of stuff with Scotty was true, but at the same time, I mean, Mike Mike wasn't perfect either in that situation. But since Mike is what signed off in the documentary, he kind of he kind of basically has some saving grace with his character in the, in the documentary I think that Scotty I think we could have focused a little bit more on Scotty's reasoning for some of the things opposed to just showing Scotty in negative light I mean it's the way you, you present the picture at this point I think that he made some mistakes but also I think we could have did a little bit more and gave him a little bit more credit for resolving those mistakes and righting those wrongs I mean we could have, you could have went in another 30 minutes just on Scotty's background relationship with cross relationship with you know other people on the team we didn't get that view we got a one-sided view of scotty being a brat you know in certain scenes of the, uh, the documentary and i think they could have did a better job of that i mean i think also some other teammates were left out like i wanted to know what the hell was going on with craig hodges and michael's relationship i wanted to know the stacy king dynamics you know because him and Stacey have a code pass i want to know exactly what's going on there I wanted to I want to know a little bit more about the Cliff Levison effect on their party life. You know, they partied a lot. Cliff Levison was Dennis Robin for the first team. They went out every night at the Riviera. So we lost a lot of what mm. they were doing to celebrate in that situation. So there's a lot of storylines that didn't get told.
1: I think uh I think Scotty, you see this, you can re- you can kind of relate to Scotty and learn from Scotty Pippen what what happened with his history with the Bulls. All right, like everybody was talking about as far as the uh, not going in when the team needed him the, uh, when he was playing New York in the elimination game, uh, his contract uh, situation. It's stuff that little bumps in the road, like, like I said. Um, now, me personally, I think what Scotty said I didn't agree with, and I don't think he would have he did the same thing. How, how he would have said that if he could have done it over again, he still wouldn't have won in that game. I don't believe, I don't believe that was Scotty. I believe he would have, when, when, when that time come, I believe he would have went in, went in that game, deal with Phil, wanted him to do, and address about it, address about it after the game. I think he would have handled that way better. I think if he would look back with the contract situation, he would have handled it better. But see, we're going to connect the docs. We can connect this docs going backwards. Going forward, we can't connect it. So the, the thing is at the end of the, the, the docu, docu series, they, he he was kind of a hero. He he went in there. He had back problems on that last game, the last championship game, and he fought it out, stuck it out. Like Novak said, could be the cameras, I don't know, but you know, uh, he stuck it out and stuff like that, and he came back and he he came to his team when the time that they need him and stuff. And I think it's a good good testimony, you know.
0: We are here with Dead Prez, Novak, and Jules from the Pulling Back the Curtain podcast, a sports and culture podcast. They are so kind enough to join us here on the Hoopball Chicago Bulls show. Something that I wanted to talk to you guys about in the modern sense of the Chicago Bulls, or maybe very modern up until very recently, you saw in front of you how big, bad the dynamics were between Jerry Krause, the general manager, and Phil Jackson, the coach toward the end. And even though he had retired by the time it reached its conclusion, John Paxson was there to see that relationship between Krause and Phil. I am absolutely floored in that John Paxson as a player sees how bad management got along with coaches and players. And yet when Paxson became management, he was just as guilty. Why do you guys feel like that is, why do you feel like John Paxson after just almost like the title of your podcast, after we pulled back the curtain on bulls management in the nineties, why John Paxson basically became Jerry Krause 2.0, except not nearly as good.
1: And, <laughs> and, and, and skinnier. And, <laughs> <laughs> and skinnier and without hair.
2: <laughs> well, I'll just say this, man. I mean, you, you got to look at this, man. When, when it comes to a guy like Pax, it comes down to ego. So that whole situation between Gar, Pax, and uh, with Tom Thibodeau, it came down to, to, to ego. Those guys were trying to fight over who got credit for with, for why that team was basically successful. And when you look at it on paper, that team really didn't accomplish anything. So none of you guys were successful. But I think for, at the end of the day, Paxson and Gar, they, they were worried about the press clippings, and that was the same thing that Jerry Krause was about. His relationship with the media was very acrimonious. Obviously, Paxson... The players seemed to respect him. They didn't trust Gar too much. So Paxton did have that difference over Jerry. But I just kind of feel like Paxton learned probably a lot of the bad habits from Jerry and being around those guys, and he just kind of went about the same approach. And it just it really poisoned his team because even Novak and I were talking about this earlier today, there was no reason that Thibodeau should not have still been the coach of that team. You know, they fired him, and it, and it really set the franchise back uh, tremendously.
3: Well, think of it this way. I mean, passion struck with Vinny Del Negro as well. And with Del Negro, the thing was it was ego. I mean, Del Negro, to be honest with you, he is the one that kind of instilled some of that, um, you know, some of that confidence in Derrick Rose to get get into get into the game at first. I mean, Derrick Rose with Del Negro got him. He was kind of, he was a kid with a lot of ability, but Del Negro started putting the ball a little bit more in his hands. He started, you know, he, he brought him off the bench, he got him on the court. I think Pastor didn't agree with the way it was being with Derek was being used, so they kind of butted heads in that situation. And you know, the you know the rumor back then was that he wanted to fight Del Negro after after making the decision of Derek's playing time. They were about ready to fight in the locker room over the situation. So I think I think he took a lot of what cross, he took a lot of cross drama and he made it his own drama. But at the same time, Cross never showed up to fight Phil in the locker room. Phil's about a foot taller than Cross at that point. So it was—it was interesting to see a coach, you know, a coach and a, and a you know a, a general manager or executive on a team actually want to fight over playing time, and that whole situation carried on through all the injuries that occurred during that you know that particular Bulls era, and then you know you think back to it. I mean, he could have handled it a whole lot different because he grew up in a dysfunctional house per se, and you figured he would have been a different type of leader in that regard. But I think he took on those bad habits also. I do think the Bulls, like a uh, culture, dictates acting badly and getting rewarded, to be honest with you. Uh, you know, we should see what happens in this new regime, but I think it's something in the culture that, that dictates the way they treat the team and the staff.
1: You know, I agree with both prayers at Novak. Um, you had no leadership. Uh, Novak, you hit it right on the head. It was just no leadership or lack of. Um John Paxson, you know, let me take back. Now, Jerry, Jerry Krause, they put together, put together a hell of a team. He also destroyed this team. John Paxson, like I say, learned from Jerry Krause, but you didn't have that, that one superstar. I mean, he had D. Rose and he had a few, few other pieces and stuff like that, but it was, it was no leadership. It was no chemistry and people arguing, fighting, bigger, and who wants all the glory that's not the team you can't work together like that you can't win anything with that mindset mind so i think john Pax. they didn't put john and, and the rest of the boys didn't put put the eagles aside to to build what needed to be a, a championship team i think they had some great pieces but they just couldn't they didn't have the right pieces in, in that uh front office and you get the result of it that's all
0: One of the most powerful moments to me from the documentary was actually hearing the audio from Michael after he went into the locker room and was on the ground with the basketball. We have that picture, but for the first time we actually get that audio of Michael Jordan winning his fourth title in his first full year back in basketball on father's day. The first time that he's playing a finals Without his dad. To me, there was a really good relationship in the documentary between Jordan's family values and his competitive drive. And I feel like James Jordan was the glue that held it all together for Michael. For you guys, when you look at that moment and you go back and you remember the moment after you found out that Michael Jordan's father had been killed and then finding out that Michael's retiring, to go play baseball. And it was his dad's dream for him to go play baseball. What did actually hearing the audio from that moment mean to you guys in terms of understanding in full what Michael's relationship to his father meant to him in the entire scope of his life?
2: Well, Greg, it just put it all in perspective for me. Um, when you saw that moment, I mean, we all watched that when he won that finals and you saw him down on the ground. We never had the audio associated with that moment. You always had that video and you knew obviously that he was in an emotional state, but hearing that audio, that in that moment, it even brought me to an emotion, you know, just seeing that and just saying, wow, like this relationship that he had with his father, that thing was just deeper than basketball. And it also made you realize that, in that series when they were playing the Sonics, Mike wasn't worried about a Gary Payton. He wasn't worried about a Sean Kemp. He wasn't worried about anything. The only thing that was on his mind in that moment was the heaviness of that moment of knowing that Father's Day was coming up, and that basically he was missing his dad. And know, we see too, as we get later in the documentary, how Mike sought out some of that father figure and some of the men that were around him on the security team. But in that moment, I mean, that was very, uh, an emotional moment for me at least uh, watching that.
3: No, I definitely agree. I mean, it was it was very tough to watch because it was almost like ghostly to hear Michael, you know, it was an empty cry, pretty much. Uh, also, I think it was it was the first time in his uh, professional, I guess, career as a basketball player, he realized that, you know, this thing was bigger than what he believed in. I mean, he's a very competitive guy, and I think, you know, he kind of, that might have been his toughest championship because he did it without his dad. Uh, also, he did it on Father's Day, and then the fact that you know, he became the man of his, you know, he became the, he became the, uh, the patriarch of his family at that point. So Michael's responsibilities changed. I mean, as, as a, as a basketball player, as a dad, as the head of his family and the head of his household, I think he grew up. I mean, I think that that cry was interesting because it just symbolized Michael taking a, you know, taking a different level of growth as a, as a professional, as, as, a, as an adult at that point in his life. And I think, uh um, I, I don't think he was playing the Sonics that series. I think he was playing himself, trying to see if he was good enough to be that the forefront of his family, was he? If he was good enough to be a leader, or leader in that team, in that clubhouse every day. I mean, I think that Mike always a leader, but I think he became more sympathetic, more empathetic, you know, with uh, people after that event, after losing his dad and winning championships.
1: Yeah, um, that was. Oh man, just looking back at it, man. That was that was that cry that you that you you needed. If anybody can kind of relate to, uh, you yeah, the whole world on your shoulder. You you've been through things, and Mike mentally was drained after the third championship. He lost his father. He went back. He went to baseball. There are some things in baseball. Even though he did good, there was a lot of people that was talking that was talking crap about him. And he, he know about it, and, 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 and people say words don't hurt, but it do. And he came back to basketball, and he he he, he didn't have it like, like what he used to have when he left the game. He had to push himself and work harder than ever before, and Novak was right, this might be his hardest championship. And when he did, on Father's Day, you got that, also on Father's Day, you got uh, his father not there physically. He was there with him and spiritually looking down and being with his boy. But all that plays a part. All that emotion was just set inside him. Everything he'd been through from what ninety-three until ninety-six, all that was on him and and he still gotta play the game and he still gotta win it. And once that once he did, it just let this 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 cry out like like man, he 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 needed that. It was an emotion that that can only be let out in a, in a cry like that, and that was that was that was really emotional to see. And and there's people who who understand and know what that means to feel feel that emotion. So that's why I took out of it.
0: I think a lot of people felt the same way, just because we all know what our fam what our familial relationships are like and how much they mean to us. So I felt like that was one of the more Humanizing moments to me Another moment where Jordan got emotional was talking About winning having a price And to me There was a part of the documentary That I felt like Really centered on Michael as this on court Bully and Jordan got emotional over That and that's how Episode 7 ended where he asks The interviewer for a break And to me I saw that moment as one that didn't necessarily elicit the reaction that he gave. So I want to open it to you guys because maybe, you know, I'm a little bit younger than you guys and I don't have the same type of context of Jordan playing in that time. What did that moment signal to you about Jordan? Because to me, I didn't understand why he was so upset over being this competitive tyrant that he was, he seems like he really had no regrets over the way that he played the game and the way that he drove his teammates.
2: Yeah, Greg, I'll just say this. I mean, if you look at the, the the, some of the things that happened after the uh, the last dance happened, where you had Horace, Ron Harper, even had Craig Hodges and some other, his teammates kind of like, you know, speak out against Mike. I think when you look at that emotion, It probably just came about just with the fact that Mike knew that he was a win-at-all-cost type of guy, but at the same time, he probably didn't always have the best relationships with those said teammates. While they all respected him, they knew that he was the best player in the game, but the relationship that Scotty and his teammates had was drastically different than the relationship that Mike had with his teammates. So you never know what Mike was carrying in that moment when he kind of reflected back on those times. I mean, you saw those clips. You saw how he would go at those guys in practice. He went after Scott Burrell. He punched Steve Kerr. I mean, there was a lot of different things there, even stuff that we probably will never even ever find out about. And then you see how Horace Grant kind of like went scorched earth against Mike, you know, after the last dance came out. So you never know. There was probably a lot of stuff, um, you know, that was going on behind the scenes that we as fans will probably never find out about.
3: I totally agree. I think, you know, I think what happened pretty much, you know, with Mike during that time period, you know, it was such a different NBA. I mean, compared to the banana boat NBA today, where um, people were (laughs) more inclined back then to be enemies or just be more competitive toward each other. I think Michael got a bad rap over the years as being like the anti-teammate. And I think, you know, that emotional toll, you know, took a toll on him pretty much when he was talking during this documentary because he got a chance to explain who he was and what he meant to be a competitor. He also got a chance to explain how he did things. And I think he got emotional there because I know over the years he's probably taken a lot of hits in terms of just being difficult to play with, being selfish, and then, you know, having the Kobe having the Kobe legacy thing going on there. Because a lot of people always compare Kobe to Michael in terms of his mentality. And Kobe was saw in a, a great light from some teammates as well. I think it was Michael's job to uh, clarify those things for everybody that's built like him and everybody that thinks that way that, hey, you know, I did it my way. You know, maybe I pissed people off. It is what it is. I just wanted to win. But at the same time, he, he wanted to be respected. He wanted to be loved at the same time. And I think that it got emotional because he got a chance to tell his side of the story. And I think he never had a chance to open up like that. Plus, you know, we never – Got that close to Michael. Michael's not very good at words. He he was very good at playing, but not very good at communicating.
1: Yeah, um, I, you know you're not gonna. Here's the thing, man. You're not gonna be liked liked by everybody. Listen, Mike was, you know, if they call him a tyrant or or or, or a dictator or whatever, hey, if that's what he had to be to get these boys into shape and win at all costs, then that's what he had to be. He said, like you said, G when they have a price leadership has a price. You know, he was there when he, he went through all those, the, the downs of the bulls. Remember, he was there in 84 and the bulls were, man, the bulls were terrible now. So he built and shaped the mold and got people in the stands and got these players around them into, into playing how you want to play because of Mike. All of this is because of Mike. Now, you know, of course, you got the management and other players stepping up and this and that. Cool. But you're gonna need that figure to, to push you to push you forward. Now a lot of people gonna be, now a lot of people gonna like your tactics, but it worked. If the end result, if it worked, then it worked. And hey, that hey, that's all I can say. He he produced, he produced six championships. People can go around saying, I, I'm a champ. I'm an NBA championship, and, and all because of Mike. How many people in NBA wish they had, had them rings? Or just one ring. You Charles know what I'm saying? Yeah, you had some of them, you got some of them role players. I mean, let's be honest now. It wasn't really they wasn't too good. But since since being around Mike, Mike, Mike was so much of a alpha dog, alpha alpha dog, it made them step even more greater because he pushed them he pushed them to that point. So they need to stop hating and, 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 and congratulate and thank Mike for doing what he what he did.
0: That brings up another interesting point about Michael Jordan and the end, because you see at the end of the documentary, how Jordan says that he wanted to run it back and go for number seven. And that he said, you guarantee that everybody signs a one year contract that they'll go back and do it again. He said, absolutely. And then there's the news that Jerry Reinsdorf said that he would override Jerry Krause and bring Phil back. Well, Phil wasn't going to come back because his relationship with Krause was too strained at that point. Everything with Tim Floyd and the courting of Tim Floyd over the course of really, it seemed like it was happening back as early as 96. When Michael says that everybody would have come back for a seventh title, there's a part of me that wants to believe that. But then there's a part of me that says Dennis Rodman only played 30 more games in the NBA. Scottie Pippen was tired of being underpaid and wanted to be able to get what was due to him and everybody was getting older. Michael Jordan was playing more minutes at a heavier age and Bob Costas said something really good. I think it was on sports center with Van Pelt last week. He said at some point it was going to end in a loss. It was not going to end in a championship. I personally don't think that Scotty was going to come back for a run at number seven because I think Scotty was just done with management. But I also feel like, despite how angry Bulls fans were at the time, that maybe it was the right time to break it up because there's a good chance that with a lockout that season and playing a shortened year, and the fact, by the way, that people forget Jordan injured his finger on a cigar cutter. Maybe it doesn't end in the same glory that 97, 98 did. I want to know your guys' thoughts on whether or not, A, they would have been able to get the band back together, and B, whether or not it was the right time for it all to end. I at first thought no, but as I think about it a little bit more, I think that maybe, whether you liked it or not, management – saw some of the writing on the wall.
2: Well, I see it like this, Greg. I think as a champion, you should always have the right to defend your championship. So I always thought that the, the approach that management took on that thing was premature. I mean, you have uh, a team that won six championships, and they won number six against a really tough Utah Jazz team. So obviously, you know, the NBA entered that lockout situation going into 99. And the Bulls had logged a lot of minutes. They were an older team. However, I think under a shortened season, you give that team an opportunity to come back. Now, you bring up a good point. I don't think the Scotty necessarily would have been super interested in coming back on a one-year deal. I think you could have gotten Rodman and some of the other guys to come back on a one-year deal. However, I think Scotty wanted to get paid. And you see the Scotty got a $67 million contract with the Rockets on his way out the door. There was no way that the Bulls were going to give Scotty that kind of money. Uh, Krause was already trying to trade him a year before because they were worried about Scotty's health moving forward with the back injuries, and they thought that he was breaking down. Uh, but I just, I always felt in my heart that the Bulls should have had an opportunity to go for seven, whether they would have won it or not. It, it's we, we don't know. All I do know is that the New York Knicks team that went to the finals that year was an eight seed without Patrick Ewing. So I'm just gonna leave that to you guys for your debate.
3: I think, I think, I think every athlete wants a chance to get dethroned. Just wants 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 the chance to get knocked out at their craft or, or be, you know, uh, beaten at at the height of their success. But I do think that that Bulls team, everything was going out the tank at that point. You know, just you know, just looking at it from a basketball perspective, looking at it from reality. I think that the good days were behind them at that point. I do agree with you that Greg, that Michael's injury to the figure definitely changed the way he shot the ball. It changed the way he actually uh, attacked the basket at that point in his career. I think that Scottie Pippen selfishly was checking out, looking for a big payday. We're, we're not going to pay him at that point. And also, I don't think Phil would have came back. I think that Phil had his mind set on a sudden, uh, certain yellow and purple uh, organization at that point in time. I think Phil was looking at <laughs> going somewhere to a bigger stage. And also, I think that, you know, to be honest with you, uh, Dennis Rodman, I think controlling Dennis Rodman is a full-time job. And I think that, you know, everybody had found ways to do it over time, but I think they were running out of ways to keep Dennis Rodman under control. So I think that ultimately we saw the best of that team. I like to think that was, you know, the way I want to remember them. Seeing them come back and lose during a shortened strike year, the next year would have been really sad and devastating. So the way I look at it is, you know, I can live with what I saw. I'm comfortable with it. I wish Mike was be comfortable with it because he, you know, he had ascended to the highest level of basketball, you know, basketball greatness. And at that point, how do you top it? You don't want to go out with a loss, you know. You don't want to see your heroes lose. So I'm, I was happy with what I saw, and I hope, I hope one day they can come to peace with that as well.
1: Um, I'm gonna look at it at a different view, even though. Oh, I'm I'm, ex- I'm happy with the outcome that we, we left on top. But after watching the documentary, I was like, damn. Because I'm looking at Mike, and Mike still got that itch that, damn, we could have went for seven. And he believed that we would have might have got it. If they could have got it, fine. If not, fine. But he wanted that opportunity. And that's what I think the management kind of messed up on, they won they got you six rings you should at least gave them opportunity to go one more if they win lose who cares that's an itch they scratching they can they can walk away with that um far as far as getting the game back together everybody who came back oh, you you might have some people would have been been collateral damage you know you have to get rid, you have to make some cap space some room for money and this and that somebody might have to take a pay cut or or somebody you know, they had to work the figures out or someone might have to be unselfish or whatever the case may be. But me personally, they could have, the game could have got back together. Oh, you never know. Somebody could have came on the team just just want to get a ring. Like, hey, I got a good chance to get a ring. And they probably could have had some pieces, some good pieces than what they had already. So it's, right now, we, we don't know. Everything's speculated and stuff like that. So it's like, my whole thing is they the organization should have gave them a shot to, to, to run it back.
0: We are here with Dead Prez, Novak, and Jules from the Pulling Back the Curtain podcast, a Chicago sports and culture podcast. And I do want to talk about the cultural aspect of the 90s Bulls. First off, the soundtrack that they used, and I believe you can actually find the Last Dance soundtrack on Spotify was amazing. I felt like they did a great job of encompassing the right music for the right moments. What do you guys feel was that moment where the Bulls went from being not just a basketball team, but a superstar group of individuals? Like the Bulls, everybody uses the Beatles comparison because of how big the Beatles were in the 60s. But I think it's legitimate because the Bulls went from being a basketball team to being global icons. And I don't feel, other than maybe the New York Yankees of the late 1990s and early 2000s, or even the New England Patriots of modern day, heck, I'll even talk about the 80s San Francisco 49ers, I don't think there is an American professional sports team that has had a bigger impact culturally on the global stage than the 90s Bulls. Where do you guys felt like it went from just a basketball team to these global icons? For me, it was the dream team and the impact that the Bulls had, or rather that Michael had, on basketball as a world stage.
2: And that's, that's a good one, Greg. I, I think that 95-96 team, the one that uh, is, to me, in my opinion, the, the best team of all time, uh, I don't care that the Warriors, uh, you know, eclipsed that record. They didn't finish. They didn't win the championship that year. Um, I think that team with Dennis Rodman just being added to the mix, and I know Novak brought up a point about, you know, it, it probably was exhausting for those guys uh, to kind of keep Dennis in check. But I think at that point, that first year with him on the team, They were a rejuvenated bunch, and he brought something to that team that they were lacking. And Rodman even brought up the point during the documentary about whether the team would have been able to win without him. And I think he brought a lot to the table, a lot of intangibles. He did the dirty work. He would be able to defend a Shaquille O'Neal one-on-one, no double team needed. He would grab the tough rebounds. I mean, he did it all. Uh, but that team right there is, I think, when you have a Michael Jordan, who basically was just a global icon without social media. And then you had Dennis Rodman, who was just also in his own right, somebody else that was another global icon. So that team had a lot of star power associated with it, and it was one of my favorite Bulls teams uh, looking back.
3: Yeah, just to, you know, add a bit to what uh, Precious said there, I definitely agree with him. That team was – just awesome, you know, in terms of that particular, uh, that particular era of the Bulls, that team was awesome because the one thing about it is that Dennis brought in tangible that they didn't have at the horse left. So they not only changed the way they played basketball, the triangle became more more their system if you think about it. I mean, Scottie Pippen took a more advanced role in the offense. You saw a lot of uh, the pre uh, you know point guard slash uh, small forward position that you see LeBron doing right now. It's almost like the triangle candle was the predecessor to the positionless basketball. You start seeing guys playing outside their roles, doing more than just rebounding, more than just shooting. Everybody had to be well rounded and you had to be smart to run triangle. So I think I think that I think that 95-96 team is the smartest bulls team I've seen. Because they figured it all out. They are all clicking on the same cylinders. You know, it's much better than that last team we saw, you know, that, you know, that 90, you know, that 1918, I think was a different team because they were, they were exhausted and they were tired of each other at that point. I think anybody who's played a team sport know, knows how it is. When you play with somebody for so long or you're with them, you know, for a long period of time, you get to the point you need air. You need to figure out if you can still do it without them at that point. I think that's one of the things that led to the Scotty Pippen Houston tobacco. he went down there with that mentality that he Mm -hmm. was a superstar and you know it didn't work out too well down there but I think that you need moments like that as a professional athlete or even as a person to get out there and see that you know you were you were good but you were good in the system at that point I think Scott learned that lesson the hard way and I think that you know that team it's just you know it always stands out to me as a team where everything clicked on all cylinders I mean that Warriors team Greg was awesome but seeing that Bulls team, I don't think, I think the talent level in that 95-96 Bulls team is very comparable to that uh, the Warriors team. But I, th- I still feel like the Warriors were better the year with Kevin Durant than they were uh, the year they won all the games. It was a much, it was better chemistry, even though Kevin brought his own element of crazy. <laughs> but, I mean, Kevin could almost be looked at as their Dennis Robbins to a certain extent, you know, in terms of personality and, and fake Twitter accounts and everything else going on. But, uh, you know, it's just, you know, just a special place in my heart right now in terms of basketball teams
1: for that 95-96 Bulls team. See, I think uh that 96-97, right? Yeah, that 96 team was the ultimate is the ultimate team. Now, G Ross, I, I agree with you with that dream team. Uh, because that right there, when you watch the documentary, everybody wanted to see Mike. Everybody wanted a piece of Mike. Now, before you get to that point you got to look at before he got to the dream team and that's when he came, you know, when they incorporated his, his shoes and clothing line and stuff like that, winning, making the bulls from a last place team to getting up there to a, to a, to a great team at that point. And you incorporate with uh, Spike Lee, directing his commercial. So you see him, Mike. So when, when, you know, a lot of people don't, you know, cats overseas don't, watch basketball. Have TVs or or this and that. And you you able to 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 see Mike in these in these commercials? Like, who's this dude? Who's who's this Air Jordan? And then you watching the the movies, and he got his his shoes in the clothesline and he talking about Mike in these movies and stuff. It just solidified him even more as a basketball player. And then people's like, okay, man, we need to watch this Jordan. So when he came to the you know when it comes to the Dream Team, man, he was man, a, a phenom. So, I agree with you, and that just, and that just solidified his his greatness even even, even more. Because Jay Cross said, on the '90s Bulls stuff like that, NBA they only they was only shown in eighty countries. Now it's over 200, 230 countries they, they they watch NBA. So, and that all, and that's that's due to the '90 Bulls and Michael Jordan.
0: Who is an antagonist that you guys wish we had heard from in the documentary? And to me, there was one glaring omission of antagonists that we did not get to hear from. And just seeing some things and hearing some other things that are pretty unsavory about him, it's Carl <laughs> Malone. Because we heard from Barkley, we heard from Magic Johnson, and obviously those two guys, Barkley surprisingly uh, took the 90s Bulls or rather that 93 finals, at least in retrospect, with a lot more grace and humility than you figured he would have at the time. Gary Payton's one of the best trash talkers of all time, but Gary Payton still had a big appreciation for it. And we did get to hear a little bit from John Stockton. But to me, I wish we had heard from Carl Malone for two reasons. Number one, the trash talk that Scotty gave him in the 97 finals and the most famous last sequence, as Bob Costas put it, where Jordan makes the layup, strips Malone, comes down and hits that last shot, over Russell I was disappointed we didn't hear anything from Carl Malone and I know that a bunch of guys from E60 did a little featurette on Malone not that long ago and he was pretty dismissive of Michael Jordan and even though there was hatred between Jordan and Isaiah Thomas Isaiah was still very complimentary of Michael as a basketball player especially on that NBC TV crew during those last two years against the Utah Jazz so who's somebody and maybe it is Malone but who's somebody that you wish we would heard of on the antagonist side of the 90s era Chicago Bulls
2: I would uh, definitely agree with you on Malone that was the one that I thought was the the missing link with the documentary and I mean they showed him going on the bus and congratulated Mike and he showed some class there however you're right, Uh, there were some scenes there with Scotty with the famous, you know, the the mailman doesn't deliver on Sunday line that didn't get discussed on the documentary. I thought that was a missed opportunity because that's legendary trash talk, you know, and then Karl Malone goes up and then he misses the free throw. I thought that was a a really funny moment and I think the documentary could have, you know, pointed to that a little bit more. But when you look at a Karl Malone, that E60 piece that came out, Carl Malone was very dismissive of Mike and he even kind of went about it saying, well, I'm a bad man too. Well, guess what, bad man, you got no rings. So very bad. Mike was the guy that basically kept you Ewing Barkley and a ton of other people, uh, winless. So when I look at that, I thought Malone and also probably Bill Lambeer as well, but you know, that's another
3: story for another day, I guess. I mean, the guy that I wanted in the documentary would be John Starks. I wanted John Starks to talk more about that dynamic, those battles with Michael. I wanted to, I wanted to hear John Starks give some respect beyond know, that situation because the thing with John Starks and the Knicks, you know, even though I thought the Knicks tried to bring back that whole bad boys uh, basketball mentality, the physicality, you know, they tried to do Jordan Rules part two with the, with the Bulls, but they were two, the Bulls were so much more mature at that point that the Knicks were like just a, a blur in the room. And I got to say, I would have loved to have had some feedback from John Starch just explain some of those uh, defensive breakdowns, some of those moments where Mike really disposed him defensively. And I also wanted to hear him talk about his dunk, his famous dunk on the baseline. Just want to hear him just gloat for a minute. And then, you know, pretty much ask him how did the series turn out. Because, you know, at that moment, when Starch dunked on that baseline against that Bulls team in the playoffs, Everybody thought the Knicks had him at that point. You know, it, it was a it was a really awkward, strange dunk. You know, from a, it was it was like when, it was like Reggie Miller dunked on the, the entire Knicks team in that one year in the playoffs. And nobody saw it coming. It was so weird and strange that you see it and go, "That was Reggie Miller. Who was that? That was that was like Reggie Miller challenge." You know, no, he, he was, at that point. He was like. Uh, he was channeling, like, his his, his inner Michael Jordan or something like that. But I, w- I would love to get some feedback from stars just to see exactly what that love or respect was or disrespect was toward that Bulls dynasty.
1: Man, I don't know. Uh, you know what? I was satisfied for all the people that was on there. Uh, people put di- their feelings or differences aside, and they spoke out and spoke, and, and they spoke well. Uh, as far as with Carl Malone, I really don't – see, I'm – See, gee, I'm the type of guy, man, that, hey, look, if you ain't got nothing nice to say, don't say it at all. So he must ain't had nothing nice to say. And that's fine. That's how he feel cool. Uh, do I want to hear from him, stuff like that? Maybe. What, it's irrelevant. We all know the in, end result. So uh, I, I agree with Novak. I do want to – I wish he would have talk, talked about the uh, the jump – the slam dunk contest where he jumped from the free throw line. And uh, I I I – I would like for him to talk more about those dunks and uh, the the slam dunk championship in general, because him and Dominique put on a hell of a performance that year at the Bulls. I would like to, I would love to uh, hear some more or hear something about that. So that's about it for me.
0: As we wrap this up here, and this has been an awesome conversation with dead Prez, Novak and Jules from the pulling back the curtain podcast here on the hoop all Chicago bulls podcast. I always always like to end a lot of my interviews, whether it be on this show or whether it be on my own podcast on the baseball side of things, you know, what something meant to you guys. And what did the 90s Bulls, at least for each of you individually, do to frame yourself as a sports fan? Because I feel like if you grew up in Chicago in the 90s, And basketball is the game that you love, which all four of us, we love basketball. That's why we're talking about it. And you love the bulls that this made you have a greater admiration of the sport and of sports in general, because you were basically treated to the best of the best. And I know at least growing up in the San Francisco Bay area, with family that was rooted in Chicago, that, you know, a team like the 2005 Chicago White Sox, when I'm first starting to come into my knowledge of of sports and knowledge of baseball, like that team made me love baseball because of how great they were and made me fall in love with sports in general. So for you guys, what did the nineties Bulls do to your sports fandom?
2: I would just say for me, Greg, I mean, it, it took things to the next level. I mean, it gave me a sense of pride uh, being from Chicago. Um, Chicago gets an unfair rap in in some instances as far as, you know, crime and other different things that, that come along with being here. And Michael Jordan, he basically, him and the Bulls, turned the perception of the city of Chicago from a city of crime and Al Capone. And basically we were associated with winning. And I thought that that was really amazing. And then as a kid growing up, just having that, that, those bragging rights, you know, I would go to different camps out of state, you know, be able to tell people well, I'm from Chicago, you know, Michael Jordan, you know, and just being able to talk about all the championships and people never have anything to say back in return. Now, now I feel bad because now I'm on the opposite end of that, but you know, at that time, though, no, I, I loved having those bragging rights and just that, that pride. And I'll never forget the, the, the celebrations in, in the neighborhood, you know, the, the, the Bulls winning those championships, those are the moments in those neighborhoods where we grew up that were a little tough when everybody came together. You didn't have to worry about people, you know, doing any nonsense and, you know, doing anything dangerous because in those moments, it was just all about the Bulls and Michael Jordan. And so uh, growing up, those are the things that I'll always remember and, and kind of hold dear to me. Greg, uh, I, I
3: definitely I definitely agree with say One of the things is, you know, those bulls teams made playing basketball an awesome experience. So going to those camps, you know, just like President, being out of town at a basketball camp and just saying you're from Chicago and people either hate you for the first ten minutes of your your camp experience, you know, the look on their faces, like you guys win everything. You know, <laughs> I mean it was a it was a special time. I mean, they were they were our team. They were, you know, they were part of our childhood pretty much, is what we grew up with. So, you know. We grew up, you know, I grew up watching uh, greatness. We're watching championship teams. So, you know, it became to the point, did we get spoiled? Yeah, we did. We got spoiled watching those championships. It helped us realize that the Cubs were who they were for a long time. You know? So when the Cubs did win a championship, mm-hmm. you know, it did make us uh, feel ecstatic. I mean, the Sox won before the Cubs, but the city didn't seem to care, which is the most bizarre thing ever. I mean, to see a, to see a White Sox championship – I remember being in college when that happened and basically being able to walk into the, you know, at that point, (laughs) walk into Comiskey and see the game without basically buying tickets because no one cared at that point. But I think watching the Bulls' greatness, it pretty much prepared us for other things in life. It prepared us for the period we're in right now where we might not win a championship for the next 10 or 15 years. It also prepared us Mm -hmm. to be more appreciative of Derrick Rose when he was great at that point in life. And so I think, uh, I think we have some good moments. I mean, they really define how, how gritty Chicago is, how hard we work to get something we wanted. And also define, like, once we get on top, we're going to be on top for a long time. So, you know, I really do miss that time period. But at the same time, I'm grateful that we got the experience. We could be Cleveland right now who's won like one championship in 50 years. So, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, <laughs> to right, 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 right. take what I can get right now in that situation. So, uh, you know, I'm just fortunate to have seen the, the greatest basketball player to play, basketball player to ever play, you know, fortunate to you know see six championships. You know, it's been feast or famine for us. So, you know, it's very, it's a very good point in my life.
1: Man, I, I, I will say, uh, you know, when Mike came to the league, he said he wanted to, Bring respect to the Bulls. See the Chicago going to the Chicago Bulls, and that's how I feel after all this is said and done. Just feel respected, you know. You can, like, prayers and Novak said, man. You go to those camps. I ain't never went no camps, but I went to many different parks in Chicago. But hell, you know, you 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 out there playing like you like you him and them boys, so. You knowing that you're garbage, but I mean, hey, you just out there, just having a good time, man. And you talking basketball, you always talk about the Bulls and stuff like that, and MJ, Scotty, and Dennis, everything. You know, uh in prison in Novak, we used to we used to go to these parks and play and stuff and have a good time, and that's what it's all about, man. Just enjoying it, just enjoying the ride, man. You know, they had tough times, but you enjoyed the ride. Them them times, G Roz, man. If you was around when Mike got on the scene, before Mike, pre Mike, and after Mike, man. My God, man, you had a ride because the Bulls, you couldn't give away them tickets to they have another stadium due to the 90 Bulls and how they came across, was just fun, which it was fun. And they was almost, they was, they was getting it. It was winning. It was almost beating the Pistons. Pistons. You get pissed, but you're like, okay, next year they get, they get there and they get loose again. And you know, you're like, damn, where can we get over the hump? We finally got over the hump, and man, in that ninety ninety one season, oh my God, man, it was the, man, I, I, I'm, I'm thinking and I'm looking at it now, just as talking about it, and that's what, and that's what the Bulls, that's what I get out of it, man, the memories, the memories you can look back and say, man, man, that team was awesome, man, and you can hold your head head held high, and you can say, man, you know, Chicago, man, we was that team, can nobody, can nobody come up, come with me and tell me. There's a better team than that ninety-six that ninety-six Bulls, the seventy-two and ten with that ring. You can throw that Golden State all you want, but she they ain't win that, that. They ain't win that championship, so that don't mean nothing with that that seventy-three and nine or something. If my, my math is correct, so that's what I took out of it, man. That the, the memories. I I can smile. I'm smiling now.
0: I think that the whole last dance period, and I, what I mean by the period is the period in which the show's aired gave us all that same type of smile and I think that during a time which has been so tough on so many people this documentary brought back into light one of the greatest eras of basketball and really one of the greatest eras of professional sports in the history of the United States and I thank you guys for coming on the show today and discussing it with me and hopefully our memories of the 90s Bulls will help the modern era bulls return to some semblance of that. But I mean, let's just be, let's be clear. We're never going to (laughs) get to that point ever again. So again, dead (laughs) Prez, Novak and Jules from the pulling back the curtain podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having
2: us. Oh,
1: G Roz, Appreciate you. G Roz, Appreciate you.
0: That will do it for this edition. A crossover edition of the pulling back the curtain guys on the hoop ball Chicago bulls podcast. Have a great rest of your day, everybody. And as always, go Bulls! This has been a Hoop
3: Bull presentation.